You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I'll just wait until this kite string gets nice and wet. Better for conveying the electric fluid. Benjamin! Benjamin! It seems my wife is rattling the pipkins again. I fear I'll be late for dinner. Benjamin, prithee get inside. Shelter thyself from this awful storm. Good Lord! I dare say it's electricity sucked from the clouds. It's true. Lightning is electricity. As much as the static charge on a cat. Benjamin! Moderate your scold, woman. I've demonstrated something of immense import. Benjamin Franklin was America's first scientist. Popular legend has it that he drew voltage down from the skies on a wet kite string to prove that lightning was electricity, that it was really no different than the static electricity you could produce by rubbing a rod of amber or just shuffling your feet on a rug. Franklin made his point, although he could very easily have fried his hide. Franklin was what we might call a gentleman scientist. Doing research wasn't really his day job. He was a newspaper publisher, a printer, an occasional politician. His face appears on more U.S. postage stamps than anyone other than George Washington. But he dabbled in science, and 250 years ago, a dabbler and a dilettante could make major discoveries. I'm Seth Shostak. Molly Bentley is on travel. In this installment of Are We Alone, we're going to sidestep big science, the multi-million dollar experiments in which teams of highly trained, PhD-wielding, tweed-jacketed scientists toil for years, and talk about work that's done by lone wolves. Yeah, but those lone wolves are scientists, right? Well, that's maybe a matter of definition, Gary. Uh, He's Gary Niederhoff, by the way. See, in the old days, if you tried to figure out how the world worked, you might be called a natural philosopher. Unlike those unnatural philosophers. So who was the first scientist who wasn't a philosopher? Well, I don't know, but it seems that the word scientist was invented by the English philosopher William Wheel in 1833. So the word to replace natural philosopher was invented by a philosopher? Well, maybe he was tired of the competition, Gary. Now, now science, which just comes from the Latin word for knowing, was already a word heavily in use. So Wheel made an analogy with the words art and artist and said that someone who does science should be called a scientist. Radical. Yeah, well, he also coined the word physicist, by the way. So why is someone who does math not a mathist? Now, mind you, there were plenty of people who did science before they were called scientists, and many did so completely on their own, almost as a hobby. I spoke with historian of science Spencer Wirt about how that's changed. There was a time when scientists weren't even paid to do science, so in a certain sense they were not professionals at all. They were amateurs working just because they loved the science. 
Well, one guy that comes to my mind when you speak of somebody who was just doing it because he enjoyed doing it, even though nobody was meeting his payroll, was uh, Lord Ross. Tell us who Lord Ross was. Well, Lord Ross was a member of the Irish Ascendancy, as it was called. He was one of these people who owned a lot of Irishmen, or at least he owned a lot of Irish land and the tenants who worked on it. And he just uh, took an interest in astronomy and building telescopes. And he built what was the largest telescope of his time with an enormous lens, and it was this enormous long thing that you had to hang and kind of walk around at the bottom of it and went way up. You imagine a crane with a cylinder suspended from it. With this telescope, he was the first person to really see what we now understand are external galaxies, these spirals and these strange things. They called the nebulae, clouds. It was really quite extraordinary uh, thing to be seeing at that time. And he couldn't have done it except he had a lot of money and a lot of time. Where did he get the money? I mean, the fact that he's Lord Ross suggests that he was uh, born well, into it. Well, he was it. a lord of all this Irish land. <laughs> okay, so he just he, inherited. He collected rents from his tenants. Right, so he didn't have a day job. Well, his day job, I suppose, was to supervise the people who supervised the people who collected the rents. <laughs> and his night job, which was where his true love of things went. When was Lord Ross doing this, building the biggest telescope? What, you know, what, what era was that? This was the early to mid-19th century. Okay, so uh, he builds these very large telescopes. I mean, he, he built this Leviathan telescope. I think it was called the Leviathan, right? Yes. And, and what was it, 72-inch or something like that? Yeah, and we're talking about a lens, you see, which, of course, uh, he had to polish uh, in, in those days. Uh, you did everything pretty much yourself. If you wanted to make a telescope, you made a telescope. Well, were there professional scientists at this time at all? I mean, There were very few, but there, there were a very small number of them, uh, Faraday perhaps being the most interesting and the most famous. And, and where did he work? Did he work at a university? No. Well, if, in the first place, if somebody worked at a university, they were paid to teach students. Uh, Newton, in a certain sense, was professional, but he was a fellow of a college, and he wasn't paid to do science. He wanted to do theology, and sometimes he did, and that's what he did. In fact, to this day, a lot of the people that we think of as professional scientists, once they get tenure, if they don't want to do science anymore and go off and write a novel, then they can, as long as they keep teaching their three courses a semester or whatever. So it's, it's a kind of a fine question, who is a professional scientist? But Faraday certainly was one, and his story is a really interesting one. He began as an apprentice to a bookbinder. He was, you know, a really working class. He was one of the first people we'd call a scientist who came out of the depths of the working class, so to speak. But this was a time, again, it's the early 19th century, when some of the people who we would now think of as scientists thought, we ought to give science to the masses. We'll give lectures. We'll raise the moral status of these working men by teaching this wonderful kind of science. So Faraday went to the lectures of a fellow by the name of Humphrey Davy, who was one of these gentlemen scientists, a chemist, doctor actually by profession, who gave lectures. And he liked it so much that he went to Davy and he said, can I be your assistant? And Davy said, of course, no, I'm sorry, I already have an assistant. And poor Faraday went away. But then a few weeks later, Davy's assistants had a, a, what the British would call a row. They got into a quarrel and he had to fire one of them. And he thought of this young fellow, Faraday. And Faraday turned out to be so brilliant as an assistant that eventually he was given charge of the whole institution of lectures to working men, and he was paid to give lectures. But, now mark this, he was paid to give lectures on his own discoveries. <laughs> he was supposed to make discoveries. So, in a certain sense, he was the first person who was explicitly paid to make discoveries, and boy, he sure did. 
yeah, well, Faraday, anybody who knows anything about, you know, electricity and magnetism, of course, knows about Faraday. They're, they're units named after him. That's right. We wouldn't have the electric motor without Faraday's discoveries. And not only units, when you hear of an electrode and an anode and anions and cations and cathodes and so forth, those are all names that Faraday gave things. And it gives an idea of the kind of broad reach of science that uh, he was involved in. So he was, in the end, paid to do research, and, and, and you, you point out that that was something novel. That was something practically unknown, and indeed it wasn't really until the late 19th century that you got more than the tiniest handful of people who were paid to do research, although there were plenty of university professors who were being paid with the expectation they would do research, and of course a lot of them did, but formally speaking they were paid to be university professors. Right, and no research. It wasn't published or perished back then. Well, no, it was publish or lose your prestige and perhaps lose your sense of self-worth, no, which I... is still the case, of course. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a pretty good incentive, actually. I'm talking with historian of science, Spencer Wirt. Spencer, uh, you know, Henry Cavendish, and I know the name mostly because of the Cavendish Laboratories in Britain. Named uh, after his family. The Cavendish was an enormously uh, wealthy family. Oh, really? And so the, the Cavendish Laboratory, in a certain sense, named after the Cavendish who gave money rather in a, a later generation rather than the Henry Cavendish, although, if you like, it's named after the famous scientist who was of an earlier generation. Well, it's kind of hard to categorize Cavendish when you look at the kind of stuff he did, because he did experiments that today you might say were in, in the fields of chemistry, but then again in geology, maybe even electricity. But I suppose if you were a gentleman scientist at the beginning of the 19th century, you simply didn't have to specialize this is true. In a certain sense, it was easy to be an amateur in the present sense now because so much science was just lying around there that anybody could pick it up if you were clever and read a bit into it. It didn't take more than a few months of reading to get to the frontier of science. Where, And this is, again, one of the features of the present professionalization of science and why it has to be professionalized. And even now, why in the last 20 or 30 years especially, it has to be done in large teams. You can't get to the front of any field without spending years and years of research. And even then, you're only getting to the front of one aspect of it. And if you want to do some other part of it, you have to get a collaborator. So this is a profound difference between now and the 19th century, and especially the early 19th century. Well, I was going to ask. I mean, today, a scientist is described as somebody who knows more and more about less and less, uh, this specialization. And, and you know, I, I thought maybe the reason we don't have gentlemen scientists today is that we don't have the English nobility anymore. They, the English seem no, to have gone... No, no, the same <laughs> phenomenon happened in France and in Germany. There was Count Rumsford, uh, who did a lot of important work on heat and so on, and who was a count, of course, and he just did it for the love of it. As late as the early 20th century, there was the Maurice de Broglie. We're a wealthy family. Uh, Louis de Broglie was a professional scientist. He worked at the university and is famous for his work in quantum mechanics. But Maurice de Broglie, who also did important work on x-rays, just had his own lab and never bothered to get a job. So you could have it in France even in the uh, early uh, 20th century. And in the mid-20th century, uh, in the 19, around 1940 even, you had this rich lawyer, Alfred Lee Loomis, who had his private laboratory, too. So it was, it, was a, it was simply a question of having money and leisure and the drive to do science, and that could happen anywhere. Yeah, but is it true today? Could you be a gentleman scientist today? Suppose you're just born into money or you win the lottery. I mean, isn't it true that science has become so abstract, so complex, that one person with some hand-built equipment really can't make a breakthrough anymore? Well, this is true. You could be a scientist uh, without being paid for it, 
but you would have to either join a research group or form your own research group. I mean, there's people like Craig Venter, who has now made so much money from his science that essentially he's independently wealthy, and he decides what he wants to do. But, of course, he has to hire a dozen or several dozen people in order to uh, help him out with the research. He simply can't build the apparatus and do the programming and interpret this and do all these other things himself. Yeah. So is there any hope for people today then, finally, that that just don't like other people but have an interest in science and, and want to make either discoveries or make some theoretical breakthrough? Is there any hope, or is it uh, you're just born 100 years too late? I think it's extremely unlikely. Even theorists nowadays, theory has become so complex, the mathematics of it. There's no longer this image of a theorist sitting in uh, isolation with his pencil. You see two or three of them standing at a blackboard, checking up equations and arguing with each other. This does not mean, however, that there's no place for somebody who wants to participate and contribute to science. And for most scientists, I think the main thing is not to become famous for a discovery, it's to contribute to this edifice, uh, which is an immortal edifice, something which is beyond us all. And any kind of contribution satisfies that drive. And there's plenty of ways that people can do that even today, even as an amateur in the sense of even as a part-time hobby. Spencer Weird, thank you so much for talking to me today. Okay, my pleasure. Spencer Wirt is the former director for the Center for the History of Physics at the American Institute of Physics. I want to be one of those gentlemen scientists. Sounds like a great deal. No publisher parish pressure, no lecturing to board undergrads, no tedious faculty meetings, no homework to grade. Also, no pay. I need to inherit a massive estate somewhere. Yeah, well, where's your family from, Gary? Indiana. You mean as in Gary, Indiana? Coincidence. Did your ancestors have major land holdings in the Hoosier State? I think they rented an apartment in Indianapolis. Well, you might want to keep your day job. Coming up, we'll take you to the Maker Fair, where basement geniuses show off their build-it-yourself science projects. And later in the show, how the most banal, most ordinary of everyday experiences actually tell us something profound about the nature of the universe. It's homebrew science on Are We Alone? What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You know, Gary, it's kind of depressing, but I get the impression that kids today just don't build anything anymore. Well, they build relationships. I mean, there's Facebook, Twitter, MySpace. Hi, guys. Jay, Cramity, when Molly's not here, you guys all congregate in the studio. I figure maybe you guys had some leftover pizza. Anyway, no, I don't mean building relationships, Gary, if that's what you're really doing on Facebook. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of my time in the basement. My father called me a troglodyte. Did you take that lying down? 
troglodyte, cave dweller, right? Well, exactly. But I was down there sitting at the basement workbench with a soldering iron in one hand and a pair of pliers in the other, busy building radios, motors, gadgets of all sorts. Well, today, you just buy that stuff. I mean, what's the fun in that? Well, at least it works. Actually, though, there are plenty of people who do still build stuff. I was just at the Maker Fair. Maker Fair? A kind of a do-it-yourself technology exposition. Do you, well, do you have more pepperoni? Oh, it's all cold, Jay. So can you describe it? I mean, what did it look like? What was there? Well, everything. There were giant robots, uh, people launching rockets. There was even a band that was playing with Tesla coils. Playing with Tesla? You mean making the music with Tesla coils? Or oh, just yeah. playing with them? No, I mean, they hooked up the guitar to a Tesla coil, and every time they hit the guitar, the Tesla coil would make the noise. I would think it would just throw them across the room. How big was this thing? I mean, were there a couple dozen people there? It was huge. There, there were thousands of people there, at least. They actually had to uh, have it in the largest outdoor venue in the Bay Area. Thousands of people. That's kind of encouraging. A lot of people are interested in making stuff. Yeah, there were these two guys, Alex Martin and Greg Klein. They always wanted to go into space, but not as astronauts. They sent up these high-altitude balloons. We've sent them up into what is known as near space, the area uh, 100,000 feet above the Earth's surface. So what, what got you guys interested in doing this? Um, so I had seen a few other people had done this and that it seemed really feasible. It turns out to do something like this, you don't need FAA approval, um, which makes it pretty easy. All you really do is get all the equipment that you need to track a device anywhere, throw it into a box, attach it to a balloon, and hope that it comes down somewhere that you can find. And so what did... What did you have to figure out, I guess, to do it, and then how did you do it? The main problem with getting a system up is that you don't have control over where it lands. So the main problem is tracking. We went with a really simple system uh, using an amateur radio infrastructure known as APRS, where we transmit a beacon pulse from our payload that has GPS data in it that is then received by an amateur station anywhere in the U.S. We've hit stations in Las Vegas. There are a bunch in the Bay Area. And then they post that information on the Internet so that we can then just search our call sign, find the thing, and then we can recover it. That made it really easy. The rest of the science is more or less we're just gathering data, trying to get a stable platform up so that we can do more interesting things. We didn't really want to throw an expensive experiment at something that we didn't know if we'd ever see again. So what did you learn from doing this? We learned in our first balloon, it was kind of hard to track successes. One of the things that we really screwed up was predictions. We thought it was going to land in one place. It landed completely another. We thought we were going to get to the Central Valley, and we ended up in Henry Coast State Park, which it took us three days to get it back. And we got lucky to get and it back. And we got lucky that. to get yeah. it back at that. But we, we did learn that our, our tracking system worked wonderfully. We learned that the, the camera systems are really easy to do. The hardware is sort of as complex as you want it to be. Ours is machined and built around Pelican cases, but we've seen simple systems that are just duct tape and styrofoam. Mainly, the important thing to have for somebody who wants to do this, especially if you're using amateur radio to track it, an amateur radio license, but those are easy to get. To be honest, it's really, really easy. If you really, really want to send something up there and you want to do it fast, you can buy a cell phone that has tracking software on it. Just throw that into a payload and it'll usually work. So it's actually a really, really simple experiment to do. So what's the, what's the particular experiment that you're running with this system and what experiments, other experiments can you do or what do you want to do in the future? We were sampling some sensors 
barometric pressure, temperature outside and inside, and then some stuff just monitoring our own stuff, so battery levels of various devices, that sort of thing. I've seen all sorts of experiments flown by other people, so I know somebody who flew a Geiger counter and was able to correlate that, you know, there is a lot more radiation up there than uh, down here. What we're actually working on is trying to make this as cheap as possible. We're trying to get it down below $150, and we think that's actually quite doable. You know, if, if you can get the space, the experiments that you can do are as big as you could imagine. Anything that you can fit in six pounds, you can do it. The differences between what we do and actual space, the, the environment at 100,000 feet is almost identical. So for us, I mean, getting the camera back and pulling off that picture where the sky is black and you can see the curvature of the Earth is just the coolest thing ever. It's like, it's like we've been to space. But Jay, how high did these balloons go anyhow? Well, they were saying they went over 100,000 feet. Uh, well, what was that? There's like 20 miles. Uh, you could see the curvature of the Earth from there? Yeah, they had some pictures up playing behind them in a slideshow. It was really impressive. Really? It sure wasn't just cheap optics. So, so, you, could see, so you could see the curvature of the Earth. Uh, they said that uh, they didn't need to get FAA approval for these things, but, you know, these balloons were flying up uh, through all the airline lanes. I mean, it's much higher than aircraft fly, so why no FAA approval? Well, what they were telling me was that for something that size, all you really need is a radar reflector. And at first they bought an off-the-shelf radar reflector, but they figured later on they could just build their own with some tin foil and uh, cardboard. Sounds like uh, what crashed at Roswell. It does. <laughs> well, what else did you see there? Well, if balloons don't go high enough for you, there were these people from NASA who were trying to make satellites that were a lot cheaper than what they do now. I, well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if, if the commercial rocket launch industry really gets going, if private industry can build craft able to get something into orbit for a lot less money than, than NASA does, then I suppose cheaper satellites would be a great idea. Yeah, and one of these guys, Matthew Rays, from NASA's Ames Research Center, was showing me satellites built from parts you could get at any local toy store. I'm showing off our project about rapid prototyping as a tool to reduce the cost of satellite and doing research in space. And what we have here are three satellites. One of them is the PharmSat engineering model. And what I'm showing off is basically how PharmaSat was built when it was launched last year and how it compares in cost to a pumpkin sat that we've been given on loan from Pumpkin Sat up in San Francisco. And the Lego sat uses the Mindstorm toy kit with some hacked together toy gyroscopes that are able to robotically keep a bearing on a compass setting. And it works, and the PharmaSat is a multi-million dollar device. The pumpkin sats are between tens to hundred thousand dollar devices, whereas our control system, we're already under a thousand dollars. The eventual goal of this platform is to miniaturize it even further using existing components inside of smartphones, such as the Android phone, where they have the GPS, the compass, the accelerometers, the cameras, all of that miniaturized. We're trying to, and have already succeeded in getting the satellite control platform onto the Android platform. What are the obstacles to, say, implementing an off-the-shelf commercial satellite right now? An off-the-shelf commercial satellite uses hardware that is, in, in some cases, proprietary, and it is expensive because it's been space-hardened and it's unique. What we're trying to do to reduce the cost is use cheap, mass-produced hardware with open-source code to replace the components in these small sets and reduce the cost of those components. So by using open source versus these proprietary or these just singularly expensive because they're so unique pieces, we should be able to reduce the prices by an order of magnitude. 
are there limits to the sort of experiments you could run with that versus custom-made equipment? No, I think that the custom-made equipment is fulfilling a need for a customer, but our control system that we're doing with the Mindstorms, that's just to control the satellite to do whatever you want. So the payload is really the limited imagination. The whole idea of this project is to make it cheap and open source. We want anybody to be able to do this. Android is open source and readily available and recognizable. These are satellites that are small enough. Legos are obviously recognizable. These are things that kids can work on and we're surrounded by people who are already working on these very uh, things for their own purposes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Like the idea in the not too distant future, lots of people able to put up satellites, do their own satellite thing. Uh, anything that went farther than just orbit, Jay? Well, there were lots of Maker Faire projects that involved rovers. You know those high-tech motorized skateboard things that NASA uses to explore places like Mars? I spoke to Matt Everingham, a consulting engineer at NASA's Ames Research Center, about how they're using middle school students to torture test their rover designs. What we're doing is we're taking ground stations into classrooms and we're letting students teleoperate rovers over the internet. And these rovers that they're operating are located in a simulated lunar environment. We also call it the regular simulant test bed. Best name for it is it's more or less the lunar sandbox. Uh, we've got about eight tons of lunar simulant and some rocks, so it's very uh, much like the actual lunar surface. And so the students are given an opportunity to explore that environment from their classrooms. What do you guys, I guess, get out of putting these in the hands of kids? The other use for these robots is they're used for field science. And there's always more to learn about ways you can use the robots in that scenario when you go out into places like the Mojave Desert or in South Africa. In the process of working with the students and having more opportunities to test out our telerobotic operations capability, we're able to sort of fine tune our ability to operate robots in the field. So they have the kids taught you anything new that you didn't see before? Oh, absolutely. If, if you want to find a way to break a robot, the best way to do that is give the controls to a middle school student. They will find anything that's wrong with it immediately. It's the video game generation, and so they're very used to operating things with the controller. They definitely have taught us a few things about the interface and ways to make it more intuitive and things like that. Well, thank you very much. Operating a robotic rover from home. Great way to explore. None of the inconvenience of actually going into space, but you're still in control. Well, Jay, are you going to be taking anything other than yourself to next year's Maker Fair? Well, I have been working on a robot, but hopefully by then it will already have taken over the world. <laughs> Not just serve you drinks. Exactly. That's my bar bot. The Maker Faire that Jay went to sounds really neat. It's like a mind meld of today's generation of gentlemen scientists, except they're not gentlemen. No, they're not even all men. But it's true that they seem to be carrying on the tradition of constructing something in your garage or building something in your basement. Didn't that guy Nolan Bushnell build the first video game in a spare bedroom of his house? Yeah, I think that's right, Gary. It wasn't too far from here, in fact. Early days of the Silicon Valley. I like that story of Lord Ross, who bolted together the 19th century's biggest telescope in his backyard. Funny name, though. Lord? You mean like Lord Jim? Yeah, yeah, well, actually, Jay, his real name was William Parsons. It's just that he was the third Earl of Ross. Well, I don't think you could build the biggest telescope of the 21st century as a weekend project anymore. Well, that's true. The very largest telescopes on the drawing boards now are so massively complex, so expensive, that even an entire university isn't able to build them single-handedly. But in fact, there are still people who do construct their own telescopes, obviously not quite that big. Amateur astronomers. Exactly. There are upwards of a quarter to a half million amateur astronomers in the United States alone. 
And in fact, I spoke with a few of them after a talk I recently gave on Mount Tamalpais, just north of San Francisco. In the parking lot after the talk, there was a star party with a dozen telescopes set up by these modern-day equivalents of Lord Ross. Did their families have estates? All right, let's see here. Got a dozen telescopes ranging from small binoculars up to instruments that, yeah, you'd have trouble fitting into your garage if they were tilted upward. Are, are these your binoculars? Yes, they are. Yeah, most people here seem to have, uh, you know, reflectors, refractors. They got, you know, heavy-duty optics. You're here with binoculars. Why? Um, well, these are actually my kind of my grab-and-go system. I'm actually got the ref, uh, refractor over here. I'm trying to do some imaging. Oh, so, you, so you did bring a telescope. So, yeah, so I bring these for, for the public and for to watch when uh, well, I'm taking exposure, so I have something to look at. Somebody who's just getting into this field, you know, would you tell them to invest in a big uh, heavy-duty, heavy heavyweight telescope, or should they buy, you know, a good pair of binoculars? I'd start out with a good pair of binoculars. You learn the night sky, and then... Uh, Come out to a few star parties, see what different telescopes have, take your time and find find the right telescope for you. That way you don't spend a lot of money up front for something that isn't quite right because there are a lot of different telescopes good for different things. I've heard people say, the amateur astronomers say that, you know, they have a big telescope at home, but it's such a you know, big deal to get it out of the garage, get it set up, get it aligned. The binoculars they use a lot more often. Uh, that's exactly true. So I've got, got this big pair of binoculars that it's kind of in between. That's kind of my grab-and-go system, and I've got my little handheld that I can just take with me wherever I go. And There's somebody looking through your binoculars right now. What, what, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the moon. It's just, and you see everything. You see the craters. This is so cool. <laughs> Sophia, he's going to ask you a question. What do you yeah. see? What do you see? The moon. The moon? What do you see on the moon? Anything? Uh, I just see the moon. Pretty big reflecting telescope here. Looks like a 10-inch one. People have to stand up on a stepladder to look into the eyepiece because it's got that traditional Newtonian focus, which is to say uh, a design that was, well, goes back to Isaac Newton, where the part that you look into the telescope is up on the side near the front. So when that's aimed at the sky, that can be pretty high up. What do you have them looking at? A uh, ring nebula. Ring nebula? Yes. Planetary nebula, the remains of a star that it's losing its oomph. Exactly, yes. What's the diameter of your, your telescope? Uh, this is an 8-inch mirror. 8-inch? Yes. Where are you from? Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Did you make this yourself? Uh, no, this one used to belong to the uh, San Jose Astronomical Club. Do you, do you enjoy showing uh, uh, the public the night sky? Yes, I do. It doesn't interfere with your observing? doesn't get in your way? No, because uh, I do enjoy showing people the objects, so it's not a problem for me. Well, this looks like the biggest telescope here. What's the aperture on this? It's a 16 and a half inch. 16 and a half inch, all right. And, and is that a Dobsonian map? And can this thing follow the stars, or do you have to keep moving it? Uh, keep moving it, although plans eventually for an equatorial or the digital setting circles. Okay, so that uh, that means that when people are looking through it, you've got to make sure that there's actually something for them to see. Yeah, keep moving it along, about every two or three people. I, I know you've got the longest line here, because this is the biggest scope? <laughs> Probably. What, what are they looking at? Uh, we're looking at the moon right now. Okay, can they see anything interesting? Can they see, you know, the, the various spacecraft landed there? Uh, not quite, but <laughs> can see the craters in, in great detail. Did you grind a mirror yourself? Yes. My God, did people still do that? Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you? A couple years off and on, kind of some substantial breaks here and there. 
Fantastic. Well, I won't interfere with you because these people are going to get mighty unhappy with me if I keep them from looking through this imposing instrument. <laughs> Thank you. What do these amateurs usually look at with their scopes? Well, a lot of them look at planets. Uh, some of them look at nebulae. Many of them are into astrophotography, particularly now that CCD cameras have replaced film as their uh, medium of choice. I've seen photos, Gary, of galaxies made by amateurs that are better than the ones I used for my thesis that were taken on Mount Palomar. Wow, that sounds like the kind of camera I need. Every time I point my camera at the night sky, all I get is a big patch of black. You know, Gary, I mentioned there are hundreds of thousands of amateur astronomers in the United States, and I can think of at least one who's actually a Vulcan. Vulcan? Wasn't he the Roman god of fire and metalworking? Well, gotta admire that classical education, but there were also Vulcans in Star Trek. Like Spock? Yeah, and like Tuvok, the Vulcan officer played by Tim Russ. Tim's also an avid amateur astronomer. You're kidding. Why does he need to look into space? He's been there. Yeah, well, I asked him about that. Tim, you've got three or four telescopes. Well, most people look through an amateur scope, see a very small dancing image of, say, Saturn, and then give it up after less than a minute. What's the fun, really? Well, yeah. Um, people who look at these objects in the sky, perhaps planets or the moon uh, or stars, through really, really inexpensive scopes, uh, ones that you purchase in a department store or something like that, um, they're not very well made. The lenses are not very good. They're not coated, etc. cetera. Uh, they may not gather enough light. You have to spend, I would say, at least a couple of hundred dollars um, to buy a decent telescope. I've shown other people with uh, the uh, the small scopes that I have, uh, and they've been absolutely floored by the images that they get. I think people would continue to do it uh, all the time. I mean, I never get tired of doing it. I think it's a blast. After having done this for years, is there anything to see that you haven't already seen? There are a few objects that I haven't seen that I would like to see. Uh, the Crab Nebula, for example. I would like to get a good image of that. Horseshoe Nebula. Uh, a few things like that. They're, my scopes are not big enough to gather the light generally for those uh, nebulas. And also, I need really, really dark skies for them. And I very often, uh, because I, I'm based in Los Angeles, I try to get out uh, with the scopes in one evening and drive back home in the same evening, same evening. So it's difficult to get to skies that are super, super dark. A lot of amateurs are using special digital cameras to make spectacular celestial photos. Are you into that, or do you just use your eyes? I know a lot of people use digital cameras and things to make photographs of the objects uh, in deep space. I have only used my uh, reflex camera mounted on top of the 8-inch Schmidt Cassegrain that I have to make very, very wide field images. Uh, and in particular, I, I shot the Vail Nebula and the North American Nebula, which were pretty spectacular when they came out. But overall, I do not use CCDs and things attached to my, my telescopes to make images. I prefer the naked eye. I prefer going out and actually looking at these objects with, with my naked eye. Uh, to me, it's just something more organic in terms of, of looking at these objects. Because if I take a photograph of them at the end of the day, they're going to look like what I can see in a book. And it's not quite the same as being as just taking the scope out and plopping it on the ground and and scanning the sky for different things and seeing them with my naked eye. Tim, you're one of the very few people who has breached the final frontier twice as Tufok, the Vulcan officer on Star Trek Voyager, but also on a moonless night hunched over a small telescope. Is it equally inspirational? Yes, well, as a, a Vulcan officer on the Starship Voyager, I have had the 
the luxury and the, the wonderful experience of traveling through the galaxy and meeting various and sundry alien creatures and civilizations and seeing all kinds of spectacles. But as, as a human, as Tim Russ, I prefer to take my telescopes out on a dark night and view the objects that I have in my star catalog and some of the objects that I actually have memorized over the years uh, with my my own telescopes. And I got to tell you, it is very inspirational. In fact, it is to, to gaze into the heart of the globular cluster M13, for example, with hundreds of thousands of stars that fill the entire eyepiece, almost like looking through the heart of a flower. It's incredible to imagine not only the distances that you are viewing, how far back in time that you are, uh, are viewing with the naked eye, but what other species or life forms may be living in and around those stars that far back and wonder if perhaps they aren't doing the same at the same time. It is genuinely inspirational, and it'll be a hobby that I keep close to my heart for years to come. Do these amateur astronomers ever discover anything new? Well, believe it or not, it does happen. Astronomy is one of the few sciences where amateurs routinely make discoveries. For instance, about two years ago, a 25-year-old Dutch schoolteacher, Hanni van Arkel, was looking at photos of galaxies and found a greenish, fuzzy thing that became known as Hanni's Vorwerp, which means Hanni's object, probably a big gas cloud, but certainly a new kind of celestial beast. But she was looking at photos, not through a telescope. True, but amateurs, mostly using binoculars incidentally, still find new comets, even though they're now competing against computer-controlled automatic telescopes run by professionals. So it's still possible to learn something just by looking nature straight in the celestial face. Well, indeed it is. I mean, the universe doesn't hide all its secrets. In a moment, how very simple observations, the kind that require no more than just paying attention, can tell us something profound about the universe. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to Homebrew Science on Are We Alone? I'm Seth Shostak. Molly Bentley's on travel. Not everyone can be a scientist, even a lone wolf scientist, but everyday experience can actually give you profound insights about nature, as science writer Marcus Chown writes in his new book, The Matchbox That Ate a 40-Ton Truck. My cat never said anything profound. Marcus, here's an observation that anyone, well, maybe with the exception of those people living in Seattle or maybe Scotland, can can make. Namely, that the sun is bright, it's hot, and beginning with the ancient Greeks, Anaxagoras, I believe, early thinkers figured this was simply because it was a big ball of fire. And they tried to explain it that way. That didn't work. Why not? Well, bizarrely, the Greeks thought it was a giant ball of iron, fiery ball of iron, a little bit bigger than Greece, which I think is fantastically precise. I mean, you know, I mean, how, how amazing is that? Um, and, and incredibly, until really early 20th century, most astronomers thought that the sun was mostly made of iron as well. I mean, it was actually a woman, an English woman, who actually moved to America, Harvard, called Cecilia Pengaboshkin, who discovered that the sun was not made of iron and, in fact, was made of hydrogen and helium, two elements 
pretty much unknown on the Earth. Her supervisor, the prominent American astronomer Henry Norris Russell, made her remove that statement from her PhD thesis, and she had to say that my result is almost probably wrong. Ten years later, when it turned out that she was right, he got the credit. So the Greeks thought it was a big ball of iron. That seems to have been a durable idea, but a big ball of hot iron is going to cool off, right? And it may not take all that long to cool off. I mean, didn't this theory run into problems sort of right away? Absolutely. But I mean, people didn't really have our modern ideas of heat, in, in certainly in Greek times, and they didn't really have our modern ideas about heat until, you know, really the beginning of the 19th century, you know, when they started building steam engines. And then it became obvious that unless you replenish the lost heat, you know, your, your, your thing goes out. So if you have a lump of coal, it's burning, you know, eventually it burns out. So in, in the 19th century, the late 19th century, it became a, a central problem of physics to figure out what was powering the sun. The obvious thing in the 19th century, because it was an industrial world powered by steam and coal, was to think that the sun was a giant lump of coal. So it would have been the mother of all lumps of coal, you know, I mean, basically a million miles across chunk of coal. So the next thing you needed to know was really how much heat was the sun pumping out. And this was actually solved by John Herschel, who was the son of William Herschel, who um, discovered the planet Uranus, and also a French uh, Pouillet at the same time. And they, they measured the amount of heat coming out of the sun. So once you knew how much was coming out per, per second or whatever, you could work out how long a lump of coal could actually generate that heat before it burnt out. And the answer was only about 5,000 years. Well, maybe, now, that, he, maybe that was long enough in the 19th century. Well, it, it was not even long enough for Archbishop Usher, who thought that the Earth had been born, I think it was like midday, I don't know, the 20th of December, 4004 BC. Remember that calculation from the Bible? Yes. So it was hardly even long enough for that. But in the 19th century, there were strong indications, scientific indications, that the Earth was older than that. I mean, in particular, from geology, we could see, for instance, in the Canary Islands, we can see uh, mountains which are 10,000 feet high, and on the top are shells of sea creatures. Now, we don't see mountains uh, growing much in a human lifetime. So that tells you that it must that it, that process would have taken millions, tens of millions of years. Nowadays, of course, we know that the sun is about 5,000 million years old. So actually a million times, a million times older than it could be if it was a giant lump of coal. So that's telling us that whatever is powering the sun is an energy source which is pound for pound a million times more concentrated than coal. And not just coal, I mean we talk we call coal a chemical fuel, so it's 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 a fuel like oil or or um, even dynamite actually. So it's actually whatever is powering the sun has to be something like a million times more concentrated than dynamite. So what you're saying, Marcus, is that this very simple observation that the sun has come up yet another day and it's still burning, combined with the fact that we knew that the earth was old that that very simple observation is telling us that there's some energy source that beats anything we knew about in 1900. Absolutely. And at the beginning of the 20th century, or actually at the end of the 19th century, such an energy source became apparent, and that was actually radioactivity. I mean, uh, in the beginning, when Becquerel discovered radioactivity, I think it was about 1896, something like that, no one really appreciated what it was, and no one really appreciated the huge quantity of energy that was actually being produced. So suddenly, we'd stumbled on this tremendous energy source, what we, which what you call nuclear energy, and uh, immediately astronomers started thinking, well, maybe that's what's powering the sun. I'm talking with Marcus Chown, author of The Matchbox That Ate a 40-Ton Truck. Presumably didn't burp. 
Let me consider one of the other observations that you describe in your book that, uh, you know, seems simple enough, almost dead obvious, something that you wouldn't think has any scientific content, really, and that is the fact that the sky's dark at night. Now, I suppose most people, if you grab them off the street, would say the reason it's dark at night is, is obvious. It's because the sun's on the other side of the earth. But this is a naive view. What, what is it telling us right away? Well, for about 350 years, 400 years, it, it was a big mystery. It turns out not to have been such a mystery. But uh, once Galileo invented a telescope and he, he looked out at the, at the night sky and he could see more stars than you could see with the naked eye. He could see stars with fainter stars between the bright stars and fainter stars beyond that. And Johann Kepler heard of his discoveries and he he thought to himself, well, if you know, if we had a bigger telescope, we could see even more distant, fainter stars. Say the universe goes on forever, you know, then what would we expect to see? Well, between any two bright stars, we would see a more distant, faint star. You know, between any two distant, faint stars, we would see, you know, a, an even more distant, faint star. So the entire night sky should be papered with stars. So in fact, the night sky, sky rather than being black, should be as bright as the surface of a typical star. I mean, now nowadays we know that a typical star is a, is a red dwarf star. So basically the whole sky from horizon to horizon should be glowing blood red. It, but now, it isn't. Well, now, this you liken to being in a, if you will, an infinitely large forest, or at least a very, very large forest, where you look in this direction, you're looking between some trees, but there's some trees behind that. You can see their trunks, and behind them are more trees. So, in fact, what you see is wall-to-wall -wall bark everywhere exactly. you look, right? That's yep. the analogy. But, in fact, the obvious explanation for why this guy doesn't look like a giant glowing blood red ball from horizon to horizon is that, well, maybe the universe is not infinite. If it's not infinite, then you run out of stars the same way you'd run out of trees in a clump of trees rather than in a forest, right? Exactly. Well, that's um, what astronomers usually explain to people. That, uh, that's absolutely. The, but they're and wrong. They're and they're completely wrong. I mean, that, that is the obvious explanation. But um, it turns out that there was a flaw in Kepler's argument and that flaw was he didn't realize that stars have finite ages. So really his argument about, oh, by the way, if, if the stars went on forever, if they marched on forever, that the, the sky should be as bright as the surface of a typical star doesn't really hold any water because actually all those stars would actually have to live for uh, billions, trillions, uh, almost infinite ages for that to happen. In fact, they actually burn out. All, all we can really know is that there has not been enough time for empty space, that's the space between the stars, to fill up with light. But that would actually take hugely longer than the current age of the universe. So the darkness of the sky at night is not really telling, telling us what astronomers thought it was telling them. It's telling us something interesting. It's telling us that the age of the universe must be less than the time needed to fill up empty space with starlight. But the truth is that that could never actually happen because the stars themselves have a finite amount of energy that they can turn into starlight. They have a finite amount of fuel. So this is a case, Marcus, then where a very simple observation, namely that it gets dark at night, has what seems like a very simple explanation, namely that the universe is finite in size, that, you know, you run out of universe in a fairly short distance, but in fact the actual explanation is somewhat more complicated than that. And so it's telling us something interesting, but uh, it's easy to guess the wrong answer. 
Let me finish, Marcus, with your last chapter in the book where you talk about uh, an everyday observation with profound consequences. And that everyday observation is, well, there are no space aliens on Earth. Uh, maybe you can tell us why this is profound. Well, I'm talking to somebody who's a bigger expert on this subject than me. And, well, there's a very simple argument put forward by Enrico Fermi, the Italian-American physicist who worked on the... Uh, well, he built, he built the first nuclear reactor in the 1940s. But we, we don't know the details of his thinking, but we think that he imagined how long it would take an advanced civilization to explore our galaxy, the Milky Way. And he imagined that the most efficient way to do this was to have some kind of self-reproducing probe, a kind of a cross between a kind of factory and a spaceship, which would fly to the nearest star, use the resources there in the planets or whatever to build two copies of itself, which then go to the next two stars, which build two copies. So really, th these kind of probes would infect our galaxy pretty much like a virus or a bacteria infects a human body. And even if they were, were traveling a relatively small fraction of the speed of light, they would be able to go to every single star, every planetary system in, in our galaxy, which has got 100 billion stars, in millions or tens of millions of years. But our galaxy is something like 10,000 million years old. Fermi's argument was if any uh, race in our galaxy had uh, achieved a spacefaring capability, it should have actually spread everywhere within a tiny, tiny fraction of the age of the galaxy. So really, they ought to be here, but they're not. And Fermi's question was, where is everybody? And of course, the answer to that, we don't actually know the answer to that. So the fact that there are, there are no aliens on Earth, or we don't think there are any aliens on Earth, is telling us, we, it could be telling us something very profound about the universe and life in the universe, but we're not sure what. Well, that's in contradiction to the other examples you give in the book, where a simple observation actually is telling you something important. The fact that they're not aliens on Earth could be telling you that we're the smartest things in the galaxy, but on the other hand, maybe it's telling you that... Uh, Aliens don't like to colonize. Yeah, or we're the first. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I find that very difficult to believe. But, uh, you know, there, there are a sizable portion of, of astronomers who would say we are the first. You know, I mean, someone has to be first. The trouble with that is, you know, it's a very lonely position to be in. No, but I picked this uh, observation for the end of my book because I thought it was fun, because I thought here's something where we don't actually know what the answer is, you know, what, why we, we don't appear to have been visited. We don't know the answer. It could be there's a really profound explanation. It could be it's something trivial. But uh, this is an instance where pretty much your guess is as good as mine. So I thought readers could uh, speculate themselves. Marcus Chown, I want to thank you for the very straightforward observation that it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you. Marcus Chown is a science writer based in London. His most recent book is The Matchbox That Ate a 40-Ton Truck. So what does that mean that there don't seem to be any aliens here? Do I count? Good point. I only wish you were, Jay. That's it for our show. Our thanks to Jay Weiler and Barbara Vance for their help with the program. Also to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where the spirit of scientific inquiry is alive and well. SETI.org. Hello, Mom. Hey, did any of our ancestors own land in Ireland? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.